Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today we welcome back an old friend of the show, Joel Weikbrot. He's going to help me break down song by song the new album from my band, Dead Fucking Serious, Clandemic. This album is out June 14th. You can pre-order at Take92.com or you can see us that night in Portland, Oregon with a Wilhelm scream or in Eugene on June 30th with Negative Approach. So let's do a deep dive. This is Dead Fucking Serious, Clandemic. You know what I noticed today? <laughs> okay, we're just going into it. Oh, I mean, hi, Sam. How are you? No, continue. <laughs> you know, oh, I, I got a thing with sequencing. Yeah. I realized today this album could be sequenced backwards exactly, and it would flow really well. Yeah. You're on to something there because the first track was the closer because, like, Kind of, how do you follow that? Yes. We ended up switching it because it was the genesis of the record, which we'll talk about, and it was very much like sets the stage for all the things we talk about. So Yeah, that track is only first or last. That is nowhere in the middle. When I had Chesky on, I was like, how the fuck you put an eight-minute song in the middle of the record <laughs> he's like yeah dude the engineer fought me on that too he's like that's the closer that's the closer and and he's like no it's it's got to be where it is and and he was right in that case but that's almost never gonna work well sam in case you were wondering the last time i was on here was june 13th 2017 so almost five years yeah as a guest who's been on multiple times without dropping a record regardless that's <laughs> Pretty impressive, I would say. Yeah. So this is number three. Yeah. Well, there are a few things to get out of the way before we do what we're going to do here. First of all, normally when I drop a new record, we'll come on the podcast, we'll do what's called a listening party, and we will play the whole thing kind of in the background. And as they're going, we do sort of a commentary track over it. And that's generally how we do this. But because this record is so short... I decided I would bring on Joel, who, if anybody doesn't know, yes, he's been on the show before, but we first interacted when he was writing about music for Sound Convictions, uh, which is a great website that catered to underground music. And I thought, man, how can I best do this? I've been listening to other podcasts, like Krista makes a podcast from Less Than Jake, uh, where he will do a whole episode on one song. He'll bring on like Mark Hoppus and he'll go, hey, we're going to talk about What's My Age Again, your big smash hit, and let's talk about every piece of this song, right? And I think that show is really neat. And I also listen to a show called Talking Records. And the Talking Records podcast, a guy named Jed who will bring on various friends of his and they'll break down every song on a record. And I thought, okay, what if we do something like that? And I bring on who I know is a great analytical mind for music. You are someone who, who cares very deeply, as I do. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to break down the songs on this new album from Dead Fucking Serious, Clandemic. Oh, is that what we're doing? <laughs> yeah, maybe we should have talked about it, I guess. Oh, damn, I only like budgeted 20 minutes for this. You, okay. you only have 10 pages of notes, right? <laughs> <laughs> so... There is not a lot to analyze about DFS. Well, that's uh, mean. <laughs> there's, 
there are a lot of subtle details, but ultimately this is very like you get what you hear, you know? Well, I picked the wrong guy. We got to start over. Well, I mean, I could have written a book about anecdote. Yeah. Yeah. And I assume that'll be a good chunk of what we talk about. I may even do a line by line lyric breakdown video because I think there's a lot between the lines or that maybe wouldn't be super clear without knowing the context. Whatever works, man. Whatever you want to do. Well, as I mentioned, a few things we got to hit before we get to this, and that is all of the other people involved. Because usually I would do this episode with my bandmates. So I wanted to kind of give the background for the record before we get started. Uh, First of all, We released our last album, Peril. It was our second full length in July 2019. And our drummer, Kellen, had just found out as we were finishing it and booking our tour that he was about to become a father. And so we needed to shorten our tour in order to accommodate the due date. And we were like, all right, we're going to take off 2020, which, of course, everyone ended up doing. So that worked out okay. But in March... 2020, I became titled uh, an essential worker. Having been very content with things and feeling like I had said what I needed to say with peril and I was good with taking a break, I now had this whole other level of anxiety in my life where it's like I can't even eat my cereal in the morning. I feel like I'm going to throw up just to leave the house. I'm like shaking and nauseous every day waking up to go to work because so much was just unknown. And I ended up writing this crazy song, which for DFS, our songs go anywhere from 10 seconds to about a minute 20. That's kind of the average. And this was a five minute song that had sort of sweets and movements, you know, like the decline does or something on a short scale. Oh, you beat me to it. Yeah. I mean, that was my point. We had talked about like, man, when we do get back together, like what's the next record even going to be? Well, we recorded Peril live doing these, you know, four or five song medleys without stopping, just like we play it at shows. And, and it was like, okay, well, what if we wrote like that? I've covered the decline a lot of times, as you know. And I thought, well, what if we adopt that sort of approach, right? And so I never thought I would even be able to do that because like what would you even fucking write that song about it would be huge you know yeah <laughs> yeah for a band that deals in very much like um, bombastic surges yeah exactly it, it was going to be a whole different approach well that horrible virus is what inspired me to write that was march 2020 i i finished it march 29th 2020 and it it was tinkered with and improved over time because I didn't have anyone to record with. Even if Kellen was available, no one could see each other. It was just a really weird thing. And so I kept writing and writing throughout the rest of the year and eventually landed on uh, 13 songs. I had this idea for the visual. The last one with Winston Smith was especially dear to my heart where he made the letters out of guns and the background out of the shells and um you know it was a very anti-violence record and and with this one i thought man what if we flipped the dead kennedy's in god we trust cover that winston did 
And instead of speaking on consumerism with the barcodes and the dollars, what if we make the background the clan hoods and the cross out of MAGA hats and we make this kind of statement on this bizarro world that we're living in right now? I photoshopped some crappy rough sketch version and, and sent it to him. And he was like, oh, you made an homage and that's what you're going to... Like, no, 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 no. Like, I, this is just crappy. I can't do what you do. But I want you to do something like this by hand, like you would normally cut a collage. It seemed like we weren't really understanding each other. And so I kind of put it down for a while. And it wasn't until we finished writing and demoing all the songs, I hit him up again. I was like, hey, man, we're going to record this record. And I sent him a much, much simpler version where it's just the same hood all over in a grid and the same hat all over on the cross. And I used his golden bowling trophy Jesus. And then I added a little surgical mask to him because I thought, how funny is it that, you know, all these people who worship at the uh, altar of Trump tend to be very like evangelical Christian and that type of demographic. And I love the irony of doing something so selfish and hateful in the name of someone who was so compassionate and selfless, you know? And so I thought it'd be great to have Christ because he would be the first person to help people and do his part and sacrifice, right? That's the whole symbol of the cross is sacrifice, right? And so the little mask was a nice touch. So I sent that version to Winston and he goes, Oh my God, I wish I thought of this first. That is great. And Damn, you're just really running through my notes, Sam. Uh, well, I'm just here to enjoy it at this point. <laughs> well, no, I want to talk about the songs though. When we finally made the demos, we weren't sure how I was going to get a drummer and who it was going to be. Lauren from Streetlight Cardiacs, who we've toured with before and I've recorded their, their stuff here. Who is a great drummer. Yeah. And, Streetlight's a little bit slower than us. They're like, you know, more like ranted kind of punk rock. And so we found a version of the songs that was sort of, you know, a little fast for him, a little slow for me. And we came up with some working outlines of all the songs. And that was super, super helpful. The record could not have been made without Lauren doing that. We ended up sending the tracks to Mike Cambra, from Adolescence and Death by Stereo, who we met on tour, on the Peril tour. We had talked at one point, he was like, yeah, if you need somebody to fill in for the demos, at that point it was like four songs or something. Once it became a full album, it's like, well, shit, let's just do the demos here so it can, I can be hands-on and shape the arrangements how I want. And then we asked Mike if he'd do the full record, and he said yes. I had uh, not only stayed in touch with him, but he had put me in touch with his bandmate, the producer Paul Miner, and I did a podcast with him, had him on the show. It's a great episode. I actually had one with Mike, too, if you want to go back and listen to those. And I said, man, I'd really like to work with you at some point. I'm sure you know uh, a friend of ours worked with them many years ago, Countdown to Life, and... Mm. I was jealous at that time, and that was in 2005. So, have you noticed that people who are in like crazy good hardcore bands like uh, Death by Stereo or Sick of It All or whoever have you tend to be like extra super nice? Yeah, 
Yeah. Like his people, like way nicer than you would expect, way nicer than most people in general. Yeah, it's you got that healthy outlet for your rage and then you can unwind, it's, it's I guess. All, that's always been the case. Yeah. And I I used to Chris Farley the hell out of like <laughs> people in hardcore bands, you know, twenty years ago, just be like, you remember on this song? <laughs> and it's like the drummer from the locust. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, man, that was really fun. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're in the locust. And it surprised me too, because that night that we met Mike, we were playing at program in Fullerton near LA. We were already on the road and we still had a day off, right? And I was talking to my friend Aaron Micklow. She's like, Oh, are you coming to LA this time? I was like, Man, I have been trying to get a hold of these guys' program the skate shop down there that does shows and like, I can't get anybody get get back to me. And I just, you know, I don't really know where else to go. We've hit up everybody we know down there. And she goes, Oh, well let me give you Ephraim's number. He's one of the owners. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Ephraim from death by stereo. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang on. I'll, I'll check with him and see if it's cool. And so she gives me Ephraim's number and I'm like, Holy fuck. Like I have a, yeah. A, a prized possession right now in my hand, you know. I was super nervous to reach out. Again, we're like out there on the road. We confirmed the show like three days before or something like that. It's with this great band Wolfpack from Australia and an LA band called Raptors. And it was a great show. And I get there and I meet Ephraim, who I've seen live numerous times. He's the most intense, menacing motherfucker on the mic. He's got like five different screams, and they're all just Fine, chilling, intense, right? Yeah. And he's the most like, he acts like a laid back hippie stoner dude. You know, <laughs> like I just didn't expect <laughs> whatsoever. And so very much to your point, I've definitely had those experiences too. Yeah, it's, it's always the ones you don't expect. So once we got Mike, I mentioned Paul Miner. Uh, he's got a studio down there in Orange, California called Buzz Bomb. We set it up so that Mike would record the drums at Buzz Bomb with Paul. And I wanted to go down there because last thing I wanted to do is, you know, you can get a, a rap feature or something like that by email. But like if you're going to have somebody play drums on your whole album, you kind of got to be there. Or it's just going to be a whole bunch of email back and forth like, oh, can you redo it and change this little part at the bridge? You know, it's just like it'd be impossible. And so I went down there and I've been doing my Batman podcast with Ben Polanski, who's on and off been in DFS forever, and Evan from Streetlight Cardiacs. And Ben actually showed interest in, in playing on the record. I'm like, oh, awesome. And Evan's always down for a trip. And I was like, hey, would you want to come and, and help document the process, you know, and so they were both there filming, giving their input and making it way more fun than a solo trip a thousand miles away. Evan ended up contributing uh, guest vocals to the closing track, New Normal, and that was sort of done as an afterthought because when I listened to that demo, I was like, man, there's some streetlight in the vocal phrasing. Almost like the words I wrote sound like they'd fit better for him than me. But while we're there, I'm talking to Mike. He's like, yo, anything else I could do for the record, man? Like, yeah, I mean, you need any guests or anybody? Like, you want know, to call Ephraim and see if he'll come and work on a song? I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? 
And so <laughs> Ephraim came down to the studio and laid some vocals on Panicdote. That was another last-minute thing. Like, we didn't know if he was going to show. He had said yes, and then we couldn't get a hold of him for a while, and then he just showed up, you know? And uh, it was fucking amazing, and he, he was, like, thanking me for the privilege of <laughs> working on the song, and I'm writing up the lyrics for him and hand it to him, and he's like, yo, I write my own lyrics, okay? And he's like, I'm just kidding you. And I'm fucking right. <laughs> and... You know, he was a, a joy to have. And then at the same time, I hit up Lou from Sick of It All because they're probably the biggest influence on this band. And there are multiple parts of Panicdote where I was sort of channeling Lou and his phrasing a little bit. And to my fucking surprise, he agreed to do it too. And so I get to sing with my two all-time favorite Hardcore singers on one song. A case could be made for arguably the two best hardcore singers. Yeah, to me. You, you, could, Absolutely. you could definitely argue that. Absolutely. And so we got those guys working on the record. Uh, while we were there, there's a, another Batman podcast called Bat Force Radio. And those guys are spread out all over the country. And um, I hit up Bat Force Tom and was like, hey, all of us. Bat fanatic dudes are going to be in L.A. I know you're into metal and stuff. Like, if you want to come by and check out the punk session. And he's like, yeah, actually, I'm a photographer. I'd love to get some studio shots. And so Tom comes down. He's doing some studio shots. They're turning out great. And like an hour or two into the session, he pulls me outside. He goes, wait, you said this is the studio that the Death by Stereo guys work out of. You didn't tell me that they were actually the guys who were going to be in the room. Like So like he, he's just like, oh, hey, Mike, I'm Tom. Oh, hey, Paul, I'm Tom, right? And then as the conversations go on and on, he starts to put the dots together. And I just thought that I had told him that. But he, he pulled me outside like, are you fucking kidding? You used to listen to these guys in high school, man. And so um, had a great experience with Tom. And then... One of the things I do for album art is I follow a lot of artists that I like and want to work with someday. And it's kind of like features. Like, there's a lot of rappers that I've worked with that I waited a long time until I had the right kind of thing, and then I asked, right? So Mute Neighbor is one who did the back cover of the record, and it is... I don't know if you've seen this yet. I kind of posted a smaller picture of it today, but yes, um, I saw I saw the the post. Yeah, so it's a cross on a mountain of bones and there's like two skeletons intact. One is like weeping and one is like praying to it and um I thought it was very powerful whether we're talking about the clandemic or the pandemic you know, all the lives lost through this sort of misdirection. I thought it was perfectly symbolic of the front cover. Had to be the back cover. So I've had that for a long time. And then I came across this dude, Tyler Stevens. He goes by Sour Steve. He does that same kind of like surrealist, absurdist collage satire. And he had this 
fire and brimstone fucking MAGA takedown piece that I thought was fantastic. And I asked him to do the booklet. And so we have amazing artwork on this CD. It's Winston Smith, Mute Neighbor, Tyler Stevens, and then the photos from Tom Delgado. Absolutely in love with the look of this record. That's kind of all the backstory that went into it. The cover is so good, he made boards out of it. <laughs> yes, yes, we have different merch this time. But I want to go into the songs here. So we start with Panicdote. So you sent me the demos for this a while ago. You have the demos for this? Yeah. Wow. You sent them, you sent them to me and a couple other people in, in a group text. Right, uh, right. Just wanting like sequencing ideas. I forgot because I had had absolutely no input really when I made these. It was sort of like Lauren came in, I would tell him what I had in my head, and we would try to get a version of that out. It was the most on my own that I've ever been for this band. So even as the primary songwriter, I still felt like, well, I don't want to miss anything. <laughs> I'm send to a few friends. So yes, I forgot about that. I believe I told you, and based solely on the demo, this should be the last song. Yeah. And I think I said apathy or new normal should be like the starters. Yeah. So it kind of made me feel really good to like come to the conclusion that this album can play backwards. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds great because I, I listened to it backwards. Everyone knows that like. When it comes to sequencing, you've got to have your banging first song, your banging last song, yep. right, and kind of work around there. So we definitely heard the same things in terms of potential in the songs. Originally, when we were recording, it wasn't until mastering, I think, that Ben changed the sequence. The closer at the time was Take the Edge Off. It came right after New Normal. I think it went Apathy, New Normal, and then Take the Edge Off as the closer because I liked that it was also sort of a long-ish kind of two-parter of a song that has the long halftime beginning and then the big fast ripping part, and they were also in the same key, in the same chord positions as Panicdote. So I loved that it would end there and then restart and just like musically would be perfect. But it was Ben who pointed out that that is one of the songs that's a bit of an outlier lyrically. Because I always have a bunch of songs that are on the theme, but then there are other songs that are just personal and whatever. And so he's like, you can't open with Panicdote and then close with a song that has nothing to do with it. And I'm like, that's a great observation. And so yeah, that is a fantastic observation because the like if you start that album right over it just is a revolving door. Yes. Like here we go again. Yeah. We switched that around and I think that it was absolutely the right call. I also love the idea that Panicdote is the first song we've ever had with guest vocals of any kind. And everything in the middle is just me and Kellen just like normal. And then the last song we get Evan coming in as the uh, guest vocal. So it sort of opens and closes with not only thematically relevant content, but sonically it has those similarities too of some of the mic passing moments. So 
the longest DFS song prior to this was something more at two forty, I think. No, something more is a minute thirty eight. I'm looking at it right now. Is it? Yeah. You're kidding. <clears throat> no, I was like, that seems long. What I, you're I saying? Didn't, I didn't check any of this. Um, I'm just I'm just working from memory. But yeah, I think Control is our probably our longest song. Otherwise, it's the closer on uh, the Squalor album, and it's a two parter kind of like. Uh, take the edge off we're kind of like never again is something that we do where we'll play a song that's like all at one tempo and then rush into this crazy fast other half uh where it really takes off but yeah the demo version of this song was five minutes long and then in my own rehearsal because i had to build out all these songs on click tracks and make scratch tracks for mike to play to until right now when we've been rehearsing for the release show these songs have still never been played by three people in a room. <laughs> like everything was done separately the whole way. So it's it's been crazy. But trying to get the songs to the right tempo, because with DFS, we're one of those bands where we play so fast live that you gotta speed up the songs before you record them, or they just feel slow as hell. And so we sped this one up twice, I think, and now it's about four forty. We also trim the fat a little bit during the demos because Panecdote in particular, this song plagued me. It was like every night for an hour while I'm trying to fall asleep, like all the different parts, how they fit together, how to make it more effective, all these things, because it's really a lot of puzzle pieces and I've never done something like it. I had sort of the drum roll intro and I had the octave riff for the intro and I couldn't figure out exactly how to marry those or which would come first or what was going to happen. And you also notice if you listen to like the first minute and a half of the song, there's three verses. It was like verse, go back to the main riff, go back to, you know, and it's like it was kind of copy, paste, repeat at first. And it wasn't until we were playing it and I had Lauren in here. I'm like, this is fucking monotonous because one of the things that we do with DFS is like simple riffs, simple parts clever arrangements cut things quicker than they should be and keep the momentum of the song and so i was like all right we figured out that i still couldn't quite figure out how it was going to start and then one of those nights where i'm lying in bed for hours just going over this shit in my fucking head i thought of ephraim's part in the song the second bridge in the song And it clicked in my head that I was like, fuck, dude. This is not going to be like the first track on Smash, like Nitro, where it's just the... And some little octave thing. We have these big, powerful hits. And then we go into the snare, and we have the octaves over the ring out. So it's building, right? And then... We alternate which octave from which guitar left to right, and then we build the bass, and then we crescendo, and then the band starts, right? And so that whole shit was way different until pretty late in the process. It was a lot of, we're going to do this big-ass thing, but we got to do it right. So I would just fucking obsess over that thing for weeks and I... weeks and months. 
I was going to ask you about that because this song is basically like an album endeavor in one track. Yeah. All that shit I just said is about the first minute and 15 seconds of the song. <laughs> this is your decline, Sam. Thank you. Like, as far as DFS is concerned, this is your let's not shit ourselves or dope smoker or decline or, you know, whatever. This is, this is your epic. Yeah. Your opus. It was one of those things, again, we reconceived it separately, like, oh, that'd be a cool thing to try. But then when it happened, it was just like, I have so much shit that it just kept coming out and coming out. And so it wasn't like trying to build this whole fucking thing to prove something. It was like, oh, you know what? This could be that thing as I'm working on it. And really the hard part was after I had this massive arrangement of like, all right, now... Now, how to do our thing to it, you know? That was the hard part of, like, how do I take this big cumbersome thing and turn it into that fast-paced DFS thing? And so the whole song came together really fast. It was just the fine-tuning that took fucking ages. Hey, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I wrote the, all the lyrics on my cell phone in the Notes app, and that's the only reason I know, because I went back and looked, the last edit on it was March 29th, 2020. And so it was kind of eating me up inside that I had this thing that was a commentary on what was happening to everyone in the world and no one else was writing about it yet. And I felt like I was really ahead of the curve, like I had something special. And so it feels really good releasing it two years later and it's much, much better than it would have been. But there was a whole long period where I was kicking myself that I couldn't... I swear, like, I, I had this feeling, like, if, if I put this out now, man, like, people would be like, holy shit, like, how did you... Like, this you know, is very timely. Well, yeah, not just that, but, like, there was shit that I was saying then that hadn't happened yet. Because that was two and a half months before the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor marches. And, and I'm talking about we're making these lockdowns and all these things, right? And I'm fine because I literally have a pass. My job gave me a pass for the cops if I got stopped that I am an essential worker and I'm needed and blah, 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 right? And so yeah, I'm- same here. Yeah, and so I'm looking at this going, oh shit, like, well, I know who's going to get the brunt of this enforcement you know and it's all of the people of color right in those communities and so i'm i'm writing this sort of like well what if this gets out of control you know talking about everything that ended up happening in a way with blm and then talking about the election as well that was nine months away or something he can use any of this as an excuse to delay the election and not leave office. And that's exactly what he tried to do. And to this day, he hasn't conceded. And so like, there's so many things that I put in that song that I felt like releasing it at the time would have been something I could never recreate, I guess. Even just the beginning of the song where I'm saying buying everything but stock sold before the market shock played the role and cut us loose while everyone's safe at home. I'm working here for you because while my job is giving me a pass <laughs> for the cops to come to work, right? There's an article in Forbes about all of these people selling stock before 
anyone even knew that this was coming to the U.S., right? And so there's all these people who fucking knew and cashed in on it before the market crashed. And those are the people that I'm out there slaving away for while they're in their fucking mansions, you know? And so there's just so, so much in this song. I know for many people, one of the worst moments of my life, like literally crippling anxiety that has altered me. I'm a different person because of it. Oh, geez, Sam, I didn't see my kids for two months because I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. I lived in Portland. They lived in Vancouver at the time. Yeah. It was like, I don't know if there's going to be riots. I don't know if the city's going to be on fire. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to, like, die. Yeah. <laughs> if I have this thing that could kill you. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it was it was gnarly. I didn't step foot in my parents' house for a year because it wasn't until we had our our shots and then two weeks after that before I would go see my family. So yeah, I mean it was it was a lot. You know, I I lost my aunt Roberta in the very early first like two or three months of that and seeing her like be completely quarantined and isolated in the ICU and and go through it alone and not be able to be with anyone and all that, that whole time, it was just like a very early reality check for me. And so when I saw other people not taking it as seriously, it, you know, it really fucked me up. But um, that whole shit was rough. And when I talk about that it's from the point of view of an essential worker, it's that chorus, that essential... but expendable because, you know, there was a lot said about we honor our first responders or we support the troops or whatever, like, but they're just empty fucking slogans. Heroes work here. While we take advantage of people, you know. So I'm very, very happy with that song. In typical DFS fashion, I talk about how we have sort of a half instrumental chorus and then a half vocal chorus and then a double chorus. We like to do things like that with riffs where it's kind of building the arrangement is different each time. But in that one, it's like no singing, sparse singing, and then the trade-off of me and then Ephraim and then me and then Lou. Then we cut out, we ring out, and it just goes to this like Rise Against style baseline that I wrote that Ben absolutely nails, and we give Lou Caller from Sick of It All his entire bridge section by himself. And it worked out perfectly because we have that bridge that's just Lou over the bass guitar, and then later, as the song builds up and builds up and builds up again and then drops, and we have our second bridge where there's those chords ringing out, well, that's when Ephraim comes in and he gets his own isolated bridge. And so the song is kind of separated in thirds in that way. And, you know, as it twists and turns and goes through all this shit, it even has this kind of like about three quarters of the way through it. I realized later is a little bit like Americana, the title track from The Offspring.
and then they have the kind of chunky palm mutes on the riff as it builds. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah okay. It's a little bit like that, you know, because that was like a big record for me in middle school. So I can hear little bits of other things in there, but then we take all these twists and turns and at the end of the song, we bring it back. We do like a false ending where we just rest for eight counts and we do one more little verse, just like the beginning of the song. It's like we're always coming back to that little octave chorus riff or a version of it, or we're coming back to the verse. So it was like, I wanted to have enough of those little things that it still felt like a song that belongs together, you know? Yeah, I was going to ask you about influence on that song, just in general, because there's so many different songs, bands, people that it could have been. So it's interesting to hear, like, Offspring. Okay, I can hear Metallica in there. Um, Like, there's a lot of stuff going on in that song. I mean, there's a lot of Metallica in this band in subtle ways, whether that's just in chord change choices the kind of extra flats and stuff that we put in there or the arrangements. Cause even though we do short songs, me and Kellen have sat down in the van and listened to injustice for all and master puppets and stuff and be like, Oh man, like that, that shit right there. You know, like those little twists and that turns, you know, where it's almost like it's almost mathy a little bit, but if you take that and simplify it, boil it down, you know, we're just trying to make, punk rock that feels unexpected and so as far as influences on that song i mean it's it's the same as usual it's california skate punk to east coast hardcore and you know just some amalgamation of those things but um the next song i want to talk about take the edge off is track two again this was originally going to be the closer it has a halftime drum and bass verse in the beginning And I had no lyrics for it until like, I don't know. It was very, very late. After I laid him down, I decided I liked it better without him anyway. (laughs) So I was like, after a long ass song like Panicdote, let's just let the music breathe for a minute. I was going to say it is uh, five minutes from the start of the album until you hit that like DFS point. In the back half of Panicdote, there is that that part I was talking about, that kind of Americana part where the riffs get a little more what you're used to from us. I mean, it's a fast song by anyone else's standards, but it had to be a little bit more mid-tempo because of those bridges. Because if you don't let those parts swing, then they don't work. And since they're not like tempo changes or anything, we kind of had to build the whole song tempo around that meanwhile with uh take the edge off (laughs) we go to quadruple time (music) 
it's not double time that we hit halfway through that song. It's four times faster is what we do. Yeah, it's like a slingshot. Yeah. <laughs> got, got let loose. Yeah. You're like, we're really holding this thing back a while. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to put it, is that we're kind of just building the tension up until that point. Lyrically on that song, it was sort of a callback to the first record. And I mean our first EP in 2006, because the first song I ever wrote for this band, I had the name of the band already, and I wrote a song called The Anthem. It was a straight-edge song, because prior to that, the only hardcore band I had been in was a, a straight-edge hardcore band. And in that song, when I say, I'm dead fucking serious, that's what I was talking about. Like, I'm I'm dead fucking serious about this. I'm never giving it up. It It affects my my family. It's changed the way I grew up. It's many, many things to me and I'm fucking serious about it. Right. And so that's actually the origin of the name. It had been probably since 2008, I think our second EP that I had even mentioned that. And so when this started coming out of me, it was kind of refreshing of like, Oh, cool. Yeah. We haven't done one of these in 14 years, 15 since I wrote it. Like that's pretty cool. We get Kellen's voice back in the mix in the chorus. He wasn't able to do the drums, but he was able to come for an afternoon and do the the backup vocals like he always does. That was really cool. That's awesome. Then uh, the next song, Pride, and I have a little bit of mixed feelings about this because the lyric is based on a James Baldwin speech where he's talking okay. about sort of this realization, sort of a coming-of-age moment that a black child would realize. It comes as a great shock to discover the flag which you have pledged allegiance has not pledged allegiance to you. It's an amazing speech. It's very long, but that particular moment really spoke to me, and I wrote this song kind of just distilling that feeling, you know, why I've never felt any connection in fact felt a real disdain like if i see someone flying our own country's flag or wearing the t-shirt or or something like i'm immediately suspicious of that person <laughs> you know like because once you're in middle school or high school and you become a little bit more aware of the world around you and the information that you've been given in school and the biases and whatever i don't know i just lost all sense of national pride at a very young age and so my girlfriend and I actually talked about this within the first few days of meeting each other. Yeah. Which was a very attractive quality to me that like you see that and it doesn't give you a sense of quote unquote patriotism. It gives you this kind of like, okay, that's somebody I don't want to hang out with. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm on tour and I'm rolling into a town and I sort of see a shitload of American flags everywhere, I'm like, Ooh, I'm not welcome here. <laughs> or it's the same. You know, it's the same kind of. And ideas. I'm white. Like you see a cop car, and you don't necessarily feel safe. Yeah, you exactly. You're exactly. Like, Are my tags expired? No. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so when I say that I have mixed feelings, it's because I chose this song as track three because it's short, super fast, and starts with that fucking drum intro that just kept the flow of the songs like fucking yes. full speed ahead, right? And yet, when I made the music video, which is going to come out on the 4th of July where uh, I, I set a flag on fire in my front yard and I you know sped it up to sync with the length of the song and put lyrics over it. I felt like it needed 
the context. I felt like you needed to hear James Baldwin say that in order for it to be felt in that same way. And so I made the video, I added a kind of truncated version of that speech in there. And then I sent it to Paul, who was mixing the record, uh, or mastering at that point. And I said, hey, um, this might be a mistake, but I, I think this needs to go here in the video no matter what, but it might also need to go on the record. What do you think? And he was like, oh, yeah, no brainer. We're keeping it. So I feel like it does stop the flow for a second, but I think it's important to have. I think that also speaks to your uh, one of my uh, major notes just says confidence in that you're a very confident person when it comes to your music, or at least you come off that way, especially live. But this album in particular, you seem extremely confident. Like nobody's going to talk you out of any of these songs. (laughs) Well, like these songs are so good. I'm having death by stereo play on them. (laughs) Like, Uh, Hey Lou, check out how good this fucking song is. (laughs) I mean, get on here. All I can say is that they were written in such a bubble and in such a period of despair, because it was kind of written like mostly in that nine-month period from the beginning of the pandemic up until right when I started therapy for the first time in January 2021. And so most of the whole album was written in that period where it was just it was just so necessary. It just everything was so urgent. Every single thing was so urgent that it just felt like like it felt like we were living through end times, you know? And 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 think yeah. about this too, like in, in the Northwest, right? So we're in Oregon. Not only do we have the pandemic, not only do we have the marches. Portland was pretty gnarly. I, I don't know if you went to those, but yep. I, I went to a couple in Eugene out here, and you're just watching the chaos everywhere and the military coming in and you know this tyrant in control of it all and then the election shit happening and then on top of that in that same summer you have the wildfires worse than they've ever been closer to the city than they've ever been to the extent that i have you don't have to tell me yeah i had packed my bags and i had like frozen a bunch of water bottles and packed food and done all this shit because I personally knew multiple people whose homes burned down and were evacuated who live here. And so when you talk about the closing song, New Normal, and I say a smoke-filled sky with the blood-red sun, you know, that's what I'm talking about. Like That's what it, I assume. It yeah. was just sort of a convergence of all of these horrible things at once. It's like that fucking meme with the little drawing of the dog, you know, just that this is fine. You know, like the things that have become normal and acceptable in the last five to ten years would just blow our fucking 2010 minds, you know? Oh, jeez. There was, there was just a lot of that behind all of this. Oh, I'm the idiot who uh, planned a skate trip when all that stuff was going on. <laughs> like, no, we'll go to Montana. It'll be fine. Yeah. Actually, if you look at the music video that I shot with Casual, there's really bright color washes over everything. But if you look closely at Casual's footage, the fires in Oakland were still raging on by the time he filmed that. And so there's 
everything in the back was smoke. He was doing it outside in the smoke. It, um, it made for some cool looking clips. Yeah. There's a video on YouTube from that trip. And oh man, some of that stuff looks so sick. But <laughs> also everybody's like struggling to breathe. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, so the next song is what Mike called the uh, Darth Vader song. Bitter Pill. That's because the opening riff has this sort of F sharp to D that reminded him of the Imperial March. Oh. It's funny because when he said that, I was what like... a good observation. Oh, yeah, I guess it kind of does. And then like way later, it occurred to me that I had made the same connection. And there's an old Instagram video of me when I wrote that riff, then playing the Imperial March into it. Yeah, so Mike called Bitter Pill the uh, Darth Vader song. And what that intro riff is actually inspired by is a song we recorded that is not on the album but will be released later. And that is a Metallica cover, the last song on Master of Puppets, Damage Incorporated. That has a part where you're playing the, the A position power chord and your pinky is going up and down a half step. That song had just been stuck in my head for a long time, and I, because we play in drop D, and I'm like, oh, I wonder what kind of variations you could do on that kind of movement here, because typically in this kind of music, you would move the fifth, the middle part of the chord, or you would maybe move the root of it, but... I'd never really seen people move the octave up. Like, that's an interesting position to change. And so, uh, fucking around, I came up with Bitter Pill. And when we just had riffs recorded, I was trying to show Kellen, like, hey, hey, you know, do you have any time? Can you listen to this? What do you think of it? You know, like, that song made no sense because the timing of the guitar chord changes in the verses, they don't follow any normal flow. But that's because they As go... As opposed to the rest of the DFS songs. <laughs> very, very sensible. Okay, sure. Fair <laughs> criticism. But um, they do this thing... It's not like I'm jamming more chords in there. It's like we're holding for longer than makes sense. It's because I knew what the vocals were going to be in my head, and I wrote the music to that. But I think that song is really cool. That and Pain are sort of kind of squalor themes that we touched on with the Squalor album. That's my only note on Bitter Pill. Because it, it speaks for itself, but I, I did have it on there to ask if there was a connection. So, cool. Yeah, I mean, that's just part of life. It's sort of something that I go back and forth on you know, every time I think I'm on the other side of that mountain, then something brings me back down, you know? But the lyrics of that song, definitely bleak. It's nothing to live for, nothing to show. There's no direction, nowhere to go. This part, rejected in every direction, it seems. Not worth the effort or pain that it brings. 
that might have been a, a later song now that I think about it because in uh, summer of 2021, I was having trouble at home. I was having trouble at work. I had no band. <laughs> I wasn't getting, you know, I'm dropping videos with big names on it and getting no views. It's just like I, I felt like just very at a loss for like what the fuck do I have to do here when my boss tells me I'm awesome, but then his boss wants me fired. My favorite artists are liking my posts and none of my actual friends are. And when, you know, just like all these things, it's like, what the fuck is it going to take, guys? Like, why do I feel so fucking worthless all the time? And so this was kind of um, one of those breaking point moments. And I threw in a little reference to Kellen because his grindcore band is called Facing Extinction. And so the last verse of the song. It says, facing extinction, facing the truth, embracing the fact there's no future for you. I, I've occasionally done little Easter eggs for um, friends bands like that. I do those in uh, every uh, skate video I edit. There's always at least like five Easter eggs. Yeah. But I always use a sundowner song in the credits every single video. Yeah. I'm at like 10, 10 full length <laughs> skate videos. And nobody's noticed. I love it though. That's great. The next song on the record is called Brad. And this is also a collaboration, and this is a first for the band on Peril, the opening song. The bridge of that, the riff was written by uh, our bass player at the time, Justin Ryan. And it was one of the only times that anyone but me wrote a riff on a DFS song. It was kind of cool. It's just something he came to us with in practice. I'm like, fuck, that's awesome. This is similar to that in that I didn't write the words to this song. Do you know about this song? Have I told you about this one? You have not, and I have zero notes on it. Okay, well, uh, so, I'll tell you this. Hit me. So right after my aunt died in 2020, like... My cousin Brad died, and he's only like a few years older than me, seven or eight years older than me, something like that. And uh, he just died in his sleep out of nowhere. And what the uh, fuck? we didn't get to have like a proper funeral or anything because everything was shut down, you know, and I couldn't even be part of the little tiny gathering that they had. And. And it was just so out of the blue. And again, the family was already in a really raw place and it's fucked up. He was just such a sweet guy. He's super funny. He does a, a cameo actually in the uh, music video for um, Sammy Warmhands and Ogar Burl Break the Mold as the guy who arrests Ogar Burl for murdering me. But um, <laughs> he's just the best dude. Life of the party. And so that happened in the summer of 2020. And last summer, 2021, after everybody's vaccinated, the first time I actually see that side of the family again was uh, at a big birthday party and everybody's there. And his son, Ben, who's 19 at the time, I think, uh, me and him always got along great because we like a lot of the same music. He was around a little bit when we were recording Peril, I think. He's a super cool kid and I hadn't seen him since brad died and i asked how he's doing and you know what's he been up to and we 
just start geeking out about music like we always do. And, you know, he's talking about all this fucking young kid trap rap shit that I fucking hate. And I'm talking mm-hmm. about all this old guy shit. And yet we're finding commonality because we're talking about, uh, you know, he's trying to understand their song craft. And so I'm going, oh, yeah, well, that's just blah, blah, blah. And so, like, we're going deep on songwriting here at this family barbecue. And after a little while, he goes, you know, I wrote some lyrics after my dad died. But, you know, I'm not a musician, so I don't think I'll ever do anything with them. I just needed to get it out. And I was like, really? I mean, I'd love to see it sometime if you, you know, want to share it. And he just instantly pulled it up. He's like, oh, sure. Here you go. And he hands me his phone. I'm like, oh, my God, wow. This is a big gesture of trust. He said no one else had ever seen them. I was very impressed by just the visceral quality of it's very visual, everything that he was saying. Like I could see what he was going through and what he was feeling. And he's like, yeah, I've got this other one too. And um, at the time I was in the process of uh, making these demos and I had been talking to him about it already that day. And I was like, man, there was something so raw and so primal here. Like, I think there's a song here. If you trust me to take what you've done and put my producer hat on, like we've been talking and just kind of adjust the phrasing and the order of some things, I think I could make a great song. I think this could go on the new DFS album. Shut the fuck up. That's where this song came from? And he goes, oh, absolutely. And he texted it to me right then and he texted me another one so i actually had three kind of like free written verses of his that were just kind of loose thoughts so that day this is a weird story it was also my mom's birthday so we had this afternoon thing at their house and then we're going to be home for like an hour maybe 45 minutes before i had to be at my mom's house across the road for her birthday party so I'm thinking over these lyrics as we're driving home and I'm seeing a picture of what it could be. And so I lock myself in the studio as soon as we get in the door, grab my guitar. I start what I think could be an order of the lyrics. And eventually what I did is I took the chunks that I had grouped together because like, oh, that didn't rhyme with this, but that rhymes with this and they fit perfectly what they're saying, right? And so I kind of grab little bits and pieces and, and assemble a version of it that flows in a certain way. And then I'm like, ooh, but then what if you take kind of like the sequencing, the ending and make it the beginning and put the beginning and make it the end. I'm like, oh yeah, that's it. Perfect. And I'm sitting there with my guitar and I've got my word processor up on the screen and I'm working on it. And my wife comes and she's like, dude, we got to be there in five minutes. I'm like, all right, all right, all right. And so I had like probably everything but the bridge And then I went to my parents' house after the party. I was like telling them about it because I was so excited. I felt so honored that he would share that with me and that it was just coming out so naturally. That's like a magic moment. It was, man. And and as soon as we got... You were in the zone. As soon as we got home, I ran back out here, like figured out the last part and just recorded an iPhone demo, the whole song right then and there. Lie awake at night. That entire song came in one day from my cousin's lyrics, uh, or my cousin's son's lyrics, rather. 
in tribute to him. So if you buy the actual CD and you pull out the lyric booklet, you'll see Ben Connors credited there, and you know you'll see it uh, dedicated to uh, to Brad Connors. So um, that is so fucking cool. I yeah. had no idea. You've never mentioned that. Yeah, and <laughs> what I told my parents, you know, I was really excited about it, and my mom goes, "Well, are you going to do like an acoustic version or something for the family to?" I'm like, what? No, this is about pain. And this is about, you know, like, no, this is not a pretty sing-along tribute. This is about grief and, and the real part. Because he's saying, like, you ask if I'm okay, I say that I'm all right. And basically feeling like there's all these people just standing around him staring like, you okay, dude? What's going You know, they're just looking at you and like, well, what do you want me to say? You want me to say that fucking, you know, that I wish that it was me? You want to say, you know, like... People aren't ready for the real conversation when you're talking about something that fucking heavy. And so that's what the song is about. It's basically kind of a what do you want me to say? And all those things you second guess when you don't get the chance to say goodbye. And so it's very real, and I was very impressed by the writing. And so there's just a little TLC from me, but I would say like 80 to 90% of those are his lyrics in the form they were written just kind of moved around. Wow. Like, that is a special-ass song. Yeah. I'm interested to see what our relatives will react to it because it is very intense. It's a more straight-up, old-school, hardcore kind of riff, too. I took great care to separate that song from New Normal because they both have sort of a, a half-time palm-muted bridge even if the songs are way different. It's like if you only have a couple songs with a breakdown, you got to separate the song to the breakdown, you know? Oh, for sure. But uh, yeah, I'm very proud of that song. It's in the live set. So um, we'll be playing that at the show on June 14th with uh, Wilhelm Scream. Next song is called Pain. And this song had the worst riff on the whole album. Ben hated it, and I hated it. I just emailed Paul, and I was like, hey, can you just delete that whole intro? Yeah, Pain is a song I really like. It's another kind of squalor song. Like, Bitter Pill, Brad, and Pain all in a row are very, like, depression songs. Yeah, they're very, uh, they all reminded of squalor. And I love squalor. Like, that's one of my favorite things you've ever done. Thank you. Old 19 minutes or however, or however long it is. <laughs> yeah. That thing flows remarkably well. I want to reissue that at some point and get it to flow a little bit better because when I hear it, it drags because at that time we hadn't, we hadn't been playing shows with the super medley sets yet. And so I want to just get rid of a little bit of the lag between songs on it. Probably have Paul remix it, because when he did this record, it was like, oh my god, that's that's what we should sound like. Holy shit. And then I you know, sent him that 2012 EP and had him remix that. I'm like, fuck! We crapped that out ten years ago, basically at a practice after four years of not playing, and you made it sound that good? Fuck, like you're doing everything. That, now it sounds amazing. Yeah, it's like, Paul, you just have every DFS record from now on. So I may go back and have him do some more of the old ones. And uh, I really like how raw Squalor is, though. 
I do too. There's a couple little things that I just, through the process of, you know, Jason Livermore mastered it at the Blasting Room. And he was very generous that like my mixes sounded really huge, full, punchy, fat. And then once he fucking squashed them as loud as they fucking do over there, it was like the bass just destroyed everything. It was like just so intense. It's like, okay, I didn't realize because their mixes are very bass heavy, like they're punchy. And and so I was kind of going for that and I thought it was going to work, but I didn't realize how much they really actually go the opposite way. They cut a lot of that shit out. I was like, okay, well, can I tweak a couple things in the mix and send it back to you? I was like, yeah, sure. And we got it. I was like, okay, that's almost, but the, there's still too much bottom end on the bass guitar. And so then I pulled more out of the bass guitar, and then it kind of just gutted it. Like, I remember one of the reviews said, like, opted for a bass tone that's more heard than felt in the vein of early 80s hardcore distorted bass or whatever. I'm like... Nah, see, that's just the sizzle on top, but you're missing all the bottom. Like, I never got it right because I didn't want to keep asking, like, oh, well, can I redo and change a little? Can I redo and change a little? Because I couldn't hear what my shit would sound like through his until he did it, you know? And so there was three versions of that record. There probably should have been, like, five if I was to get it exactly the way I wanted to hear it, but... At some point, I'd love to have Paul go through and do his thing to it because I think the the tracks are very good, much better than that EP that he did. I would agree. When I was uh, reviewing that album, and yeah. I was working Graveyard at the time, and it was the exact length of my drive to work, <laughs> so I'd hit the same songs at every point, you know? <laughs> and what it would be like pouring down rain and I'm driving down I-5. Do you remember the name? What was the fourth track on that album? Track four help. is Fuck Yourself. So it would have been the one before that. Because I'm like right pulling onto the freeway and I always felt like I was about to die. Because <laughs> <laughs> like that, that song is so fast and so like gritty. Yeah. And I'm just like, I'm, here, I, here, here I go into the mix. <laughs> and I remember I threw that into the review. I used to love uh, reading your stuff because again, like in the way that I am very obsessive and analytical, you would be like, yeah, I just, uh, give me a couple more days. I've only listened to it 20 times. <laughs> and I, I just love that about you so much. What does a uh, very popular website? Pornhub. <laughs> no, it uh, does like music reviews and stuff. Uh, Pitchfork. Pitchfork. Uh, it was a P. They do their premature evaluations where oh. like it's a one one listen and write a review based on it. Yeah. I was always like the opposite of that. Yeah. Like I'm going to listen to this as many times as it takes to put myself in the seat of the person writing it, who's then recording it, who's then going back over it and like, fuck, yeah. that doesn't work. You know. Yeah, and, and more and more with age and experience, I've latched onto the value of that because the more records that you have heard and all the songs that you have sung and memorized and sung along to, it's like you have just so much information competing in your head and that creates expectations and that creates all these other things and, and biases. And so 
I really like to uh, watch a movie a few times before I review it or, you know, hear an album a number of times and sit down with the lyric booklet and really try to digest it before coming to any conclusions. And I found that I appreciate it a lot more after several times through. Like the new Chili Peppers album is a great example. Like I'm sure I'll talk about that on my Albums of the Year episode this year where it was one where I heard it and it was like instantly familiar. It was like, oh yeah, that feels right. That's cool. But it didn't really like blow my mind. And then it was through listening to their podcasts uh, with Rick Rubin, their interviews, hearing how some of the jams started or hearing what I thought was Anthony Kiedis gibberish actually being a real meaningful story and just hearing some of the the stuff that went into it being created then when i'm listening to it i have fresh perspective and it's like oh yeah wow that's fucking way deeper than i thought like oh that's cool you know and so really feeling um not so much like oh i've heard this before i knew what this was going to be but feeling like oh i thought it was one thing but now it's another our mutual friend, Skeptic, yes, was just up here, stayed with me for a few days, uh, working on a little something that'll come out eventually. Uh, Again, Pornhub. We, <laughs> you came up a few times, but in this particular context, to be clear, uh, I did not come up to Portland <laughs> like Chad did. No, 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 no. You, uh, you, you popped up in conversation. Okay, okay. Uh, regarding Batman versus Superman. Oh. Yeah, You were the one who had me look at that movie, had me watch it through a different lens. Yeah. Because I did, I remember we, we had a few like back and forth of like, I'm like, this movie's fucking dog shit, Sam. And you're like, no, <laughs> it's not dog shit. People hated that movie. and Watch it with this in mind. Yeah. And then I did and I was like, oh. Yeah. It- oh, that's fuck. Then I felt like an idiot because I didn't see it before. Yeah. Point being. Um, sometimes it's good to have like the other angles. I don't think you can get me out of the chili peppers. I'm sorry. No, but, that's fine. That's fine. Um, <laughs> I definitely see what you mean. Well, that is also what we're doing with this podcast right now. So back to Clandemic track seven. I like to throw one song in every record that's a little different you mentioned something more on peril it's kind of a melodic one right you know we like to do stuff that's just a little different here and there and on this record it's sinker and the title is like hook line and sinker because i'm talking about you speak but never teach you listen but never hear it's just like we're always in dialogue with each other but we're not really getting anything out of it we're just shouting over the top of each other right and so that's kind of what this song is about but musically it's an oddball because i never use single note riffs as opposed to a full power chord or something i think blank check is one of the only examples where we did that in the past yes there you go tell everyone what your note said it says closest thing to a standard punk rock song since something more Yeah, I'd say that one's a little more melodic skate punk, maybe. I would have likened this a little bit more to maybe Save Your Breath or Deathbed or something that's a little more old school. Because Save Your Breath might be a better comparison. What I was listening to at the time was Jello Biafra and the Guantanamo School of Medicine. 
I don't, I don't hear any of that on that song. But That's so sure. funny. I was prepping for my Jello Biafra interview. Oh, and it was so good. Thank you. So I was listening to his new record all the time, and I was noodling on the guitar, and I came up with that main riff. I'm like, oh, that's cool, man. That's like some Kennedy's shit. That's rad. And I just recorded it on my voice memo, and it was just stored away. And so once I am a few songs deep into a record, I will go into my iPhone and be like, all right, what's all the riffs between last record and this one that I haven't done anything with? Is there anything cool in there? And that was Sinker. It becomes more of a normal DFS song, but it has that little guitar part in a couple moments that was just kind of my nod to Jello and the old Kennedy stuff. It has the same thing, maybe three to four songs on this album do, which is, so a standard punk rock song, let's just say three minutes. Yeah. And compressing it down to like a minute seven or what have you. Yeah. You fit a full song into a quarter of a song. Sure, yeah. And this is one where I mentioned how we were sort of teasing and building up into the Panicdote chorus. This does that with a pre-chorus in that... Like after the first verse, we kind of halfway do the pre-chorus and then we cut right back into the verse. After the second verse, we build up and then we do this big part that it's not exactly a chorus. It kind of only happens one time, but it's like the biggest part of the song, this big crescendo. And then we cut back to the, the main riff for just a second, you know, and we don't ride on the main riff again. It's just the guitar goes for a second and then we're right back into the next verse, you know. When the pre-chorus comes back in after that verse, we don't do the accent thing or like we, you know, like every time it's a little bit different. I think in the third time, no, we do add the little accent is what it is. But each time it's a little bit different. But again, you're kind of just trimming the fat and keeping the song moving, but also making it fresh and unexpected of like, oh, that's cool. They're going to do a more straight up song. Oh, well, no, not quite. <laughs> the opposite of avenues and alleyways where it just kind of keeps going when it needed to stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I will shout out Ben on the bass part because on the demo, I had a really hard time playing that bass line that I wrote. It wasn't natural for me to play, but when you hear his tracks, it sounds fucking great. That ending is super tight. Now, the next song is one of the singles for the record. We shot a video for this at Program Skate and Sound. So we did two days at Paul Miner Studio. We did drums for all the songs on day one, except for the second day we did the two long songs. So we did Panicdote and the Metallica cover. And that's when Ephraim came in, and that's when I did a bunch of my guitar parts. So between the session and going home the next morning, we went to program after hours and we filmed a music video there. And now in the month since we did it, because that was November, fucking Ignite has shot a video there. The Last Gang has shot a video there. I'm like, oh man, we were going to be the first ones. <laughs> but um, it'll be coming out very soon, probably by the time this episode is out. And the song is called Death Knell. Dude, that's super sick for program, though. Yeah. Any skate shop record store, I am a huge fan of. Yes. I've never been to program. I love them already. 
there's a place in Salt Lake City called Ranch Records. It's a record store in the middle, and then on the outsides is a skate shop. That's sweet. Those are just the greatest retail establishments possible, if yeah. you ask me. Yeah, I love it so much. The only thing it's missing is comics. If you have all, all three, it's all all the best shit. All the coolest oh, people. Oh, have comics, too, at no. Ranch Records. Oh, really? If you're ever in Salt Lake City, go there. It is the greatest place on Earth. That's good, because Salt Lake City itself is not the greatest place on Earth. <laughs> um, no. Anyway, the song Death Knell is one of my personal favorites on the record, and that's why I wanted to shoot the video for it. And it's another one where it just needed a better intro. I really admire these bands like Bad Religion and Pennywise who have been doing this one kind of music that is their style for 40 years or something, and they manage to keep their riffs fresh and they don't feel like they're just repeating themselves and like they're still their style because sometimes I hit a wall and I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, we would do that, but we've done that. I don't want to do that. Like what, what else? Right. And so <laughs> one day it hit me, I was listening to Aglio Eolio by the Beastie Boys. There's a song on there that starts with like the snare on the one. That's how I came up with the like, because it's almost like a shuffle or something like the da -na -na -da -na -na -da -na, the triplet thing. I'm like, that's kind of neat. And we've never done anything like that. And so I was like, well, that would fit with the chords of that main rip. Oh, shit. It was just one day cleaning the house, listening to the Beastie Boys. I'm like, oh, that rhythm, those chords, this tempo, fuck. It fixed the whole, the whole song. But there's even a really busy lot of chords riff that comes out of the breakdown there that was supposed to be a short solo. But I liked the chords so much. I was like, I want you to hear them. Because usually I give myself one solo per album. And, and this. It's that confidence thing again. <laughs> it's you, a, you knew yeah you knew you you don't have to be humble about it i knew the part was cool and i really thought it would be better to just leave it than to put more shit over the top of it because like i think back to the last one standing the first track on that 2012 ep when we were teaching that to various bass players i could never even sitting in front of the speakers listening to it on a loop I couldn't figure out the chords that I played behind the solo <laughs> because it was like, it was straight chromatic, except it wasn't like there was always be these little shifts here and there. And like, I remember sitting down and taking so fucking long to figure it out. I had that sort of feeling with this of like, man, it's interesting enough. Just let it be. You know, the song's fast. It's short. Even the halftime bridge that we're coming out of is really short. Mike's killing it with the fills. It's just like, it didn't need more shit. Exactly. The lyrics of this song, Death Knell, are also very special to me. Probably second only to Panicdote and New Normal, really my favorite on the record. And you can tell when this was written, because right now, 
it would start with the number six. But at the time, it starts with one million dead. No sympathy here. We're bored and arrogant, nothing to fear. Except the Muslims and immigrant children. My gun will protect me from dark-skinned civilians. I don't know, maybe I'm channeling a little, not Biafra, but maybe, maybe Ephraim from Death by Syria or something. But I just felt like so, just so fucking bitter, you know, just so like, I can't believe what I'm seeing right now. I liked too that this song has, you know, whereas Panicdote, I'm saying things that are in the moment that maybe in time turned out to not be that big of a deal, things I was scared about. I didn't know what the lockdown meant, and I, you know, it was very scary. Is this a police state? I don't fucking know, right? And then in time, I came to feel differently about certain restrictions in place. So in this song, there's a, a bit in here where I say, uh, conspiracy theorists distorting the facts, too much to ask to wear a fucking mask. I like that for anyone who uh, will hear Panicdote first, you know, they might hear a line or two in there and be like, is this some weird, like, libertarian old guy punk or something, you know? <laughs> I want it to be very clear that it's not through the rest of the messages on the record. And that's one of the little lines that I thought made me not want to edit anything on the original, on, on the other song. Like, maybe I don't feel a couple of these things anymore, but the album as a whole. You know, I, I, I had a thought along those lines upon first listen and then like kind of continuing on to like hundredth or whatever yeah. however many i'm at yeah no honestly it it's so indicative of this thing that's burned into all of our memories and the way so many of us felt it'll age well i love that thank you i actually had the manufacturer for the cd atomic disc has made all my stuff for i don't know probably a decade and uh, this is the first time that they ever, for all of my offensive creations, this is the first time that they ever wrote me back after my order and said, can you write an explanation for this potentially racist artwork? Because <laughs> I got the MAGA hats and the clan and all that shit. Oh, yeah. I and, said the same thing, too, when you first sent it to me. I was like, this could be missing. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. And I sent it to Winston and uh, his girlfriend, Chick. And they, they both thought that was fucking gold. It's more looking at it from a, uh, like, if you were one of those folks, you could construe it to be a pro mega i mean they're mental gymnasts so i won't put anything oh, past them geez. You, <laughs> i mean you have an idea well let's not talk about that because uh we've been here long enough and we got a few songs left the next one is the title track it's called clandemic the transition from death knell to that song is really good Ooh, thank you thank you it's right up there with that, like, jump to long view transition. Ooh. Like, it, flow, it flows, it flows real nice. That's great. Uh, actually, the, the clandemic into anti-hero transition is one I was very pleased with because... Also superb. Because Antihero was already written. Well, the whole album was already written. There was a demo for a song called Liquor Store 
that I cut. Driving home from the comic shop, and I was seeing like the closed down record store that's now an IHOP, and like just kind of you're driving through your town and it doesn't look the same, like a Less Than Jake song or something, or you know, and and I'm seeing all these gun shops and weed shops and liquor stores, and I'm like, fuck, like we can have six weed shops on this one street and we can't have, you know, a sustainable good size record store at all? Like, what the fuck, you know? And so I was kind of writing about that and sort of maybe what that said about the values of our culture. And the song just sucked. It had a couple good lines in it. I saved the best few lines. Sex is shameful, violence is pure, ignorance is bliss. Just too painful. I cannot endure these selfish invalids. That section, lyrics only, are from Liquor Store. And when the whole record was done, I still felt like it didn't quite have the perfect sequencing. It still needed that extra song. And so I wrote kind of a slower, moshier riff and sort of wrote from the perspective of this spreading virus that we've talked about, but as a metaphor for the spread of the uber right-wing mass brainwashing that's happened over the past five years. You did your own Don't Look Up. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, by the end of the song, it's very clear what I'm talking about, but I was proud of this one. It's one of those songs that I couldn't have written before being a rapper because it's like these subtle twists of like vile and apathetic. Each verse is the same with subtle tweaks, you know? And so the like lots of multi-syllable rhymes, but like vile and apathetic, violent and pathetic stuff I learned from working with Micah 9, where it's just like you can take an entire fucking verse and lay it over the top of this other rewritten verse that totally matches up and says something different. And so each verse evolves a little bit until it's very much like using the word clandemic, calling it a viral clandemic, like viral meaning like online viral spread. Lots of little terminology sprinkled in there that I thought was fun. And then Antihero, which is the song we're streaming now with the pre-order, is another one of my favorites. Coming out of Clandemic, intentionally butted it up against this one. Like, it'll always go with it. Like, you mentioned Green Day. Like, Brain Stew Jaded. Like, they're just always going to go there. If you only hear Brain Stew and then a different song comes on after, like, yeah, like what? that's wrong. Yeah, it's a perfect segue. Goes into this kind of good riddancy, super fast octave thing. And I've always had really strong feelings about not just the military and war in general, but also just the way they prey on kids and manipulate people who are at a disadvantage. They used to lurk around the skate park and the high school parking lot and, 
you know, they're just, just insidious. Like, I find it really revolting, back to our discussion on national pride. You know, <laughs> it's really sickening to me the way that they use people up and send them off to die. And so opening this song with the words, you're no hero, trigger happy scum, enlisted to get your kicks and play with machine guns. The original title for the song was trigger happy scum. <laughs> I was sitting on those words for a while, as the music developed, I thought of the phrase anti-hero because it's obviously not like your protagonist being an anti-hero. It's I'm anti this type of hero. I, I like that, Sam. I liked it a lot too. It's one that I kind of wanted to make a video for. Maybe we will later, but like I almost dropped it on Memorial Day, but I was like, oh, it's maybe like two on the nose. Like you can fuck with the 4th of July, but also, you know, Memorial Day has older dead veterans that actually um, did help. Right. So I don't want to conflate that with Afghanistan and <laughs> Vietnam. Like, they're all that, you know. But I've wanted to say something like that for a long time. I think it'll be one of the maybe less popular ones or more popular ones. Because usually when I say some shit that I think, oh, people aren't going to like this, a lot of times that's when I get the biggest reactions of like, oh, man, I'm glad you said that. Yeah, I, I kind of had that thought. That's like my note for it. So the chorus of this song, I was playing around with that sort of and I was like, oh, you know what? That's a little bit enough space from the Foo Fighters. Because one thing that's really fun in doing all those stolen songs records that I've done is that you're putting your hands in a position they wouldn't have gone in before. You're learning some other guitar player's style of putting a riff together, right? It's like a totally different key, and it doesn't move the same way, but there's a certain characteristic about it, sort of the chromatic nature of it and the you know snares on the ones and stuff, the way that it syncs with the drums. But it reminded me a little bit of that Foo Fighters riff in a way. I've been learning some older country songs lately. Yeah. Learning a chord you've never played before. Yeah. Is just this like monumental thing when it comes to songwriting. Because then you have this thing in your arsenal you've never had. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You're just like this piece of ammunition that you never knew existed. Or you did, you just didn't know how to play it. I know you're a, work it in. you're a fan of the the Daydream album that I did. Um, I am. You know the song Draw the Line? I am yes. fucked and I am on my own. Well, there's a chord in that song that I only learned from doing my John Frusciante set. Another suck it up, another second chance, another disappointment, a circumstance. I can't say The song is not overly complicated. It's a lot of simple open chords and throws that in there. I'm like, ooh, that's tasty. And I sat on that for a long time in the back of my head. And when I was writing that song, it was like, ooh, that fits here. Cool. That like really just gives it a little more depth of character, you know? That is a chord, man. Yeah. I have this in my arsenal now. Speaking of chords, the end of this song is a clusterfuck because we cut off and then we have a, a tempo change and it does sort of this, sh this short little bit. 
And that's really the whole outro, but we let Mike go fucking ape shit on the fills here, and the chords are fucking nuts. Kellen said this is one of his favorite parts on the record, and he's like, oh yeah, I'm glad we're playing Antihero, because that fucking ending is nuts. That one even confuses me, because the whole song is built on a certain hand position. I just fuck shit up, to where it's like, every time I teach it to a bass player, like one of our songs is like, oh yeah, but then you gotta, well, but then also you gotta... Oh, it's pretty easy. Accept this, accept that, accept this. It's all the little fucking changes. So even when I'm playing that song, I'm like, okay, it switches and continues the chromatic, but then it skips that one half. It's like fucking, it's math <laughs> at a certain point. Like, it sounds straightforward because we're not playing like lead rips and stuff, but it's still complicated. Can I just say real quick, it's really nice to see you, Sam, even though it's over, <laughs> over the internet. I haven't seen you in a while. That's person, true. We so. haven't communicated with voices and faces in a long time. Only with cat photos. <laughs> that is the entirety of our text messages. We do have the greatest text thread of all time, I believe, because there is no words, only one orange cat and then another orange cat in you perfect succession. Asleep. Now, the next song actually does simplify. It's called Losing Ground. And this, musically, is the most like our early 2006 material. It's a low, chromatic guitar riff, very meat and potatoes song. It is a million percent a DFS song. Yeah, we added, you know, little tiny tweaks here and there, like where the guitars cut out. And then Mike added the ending. We go back to the main riff. And that was supposed to be the big dynamic shift. But he goes, oh, what if you just ring out? And I crash on each of those notes, but then I fucking fill like crazy. And it's like way bigger going into that last verse. And you're I'm like, like, oh, yes. You're the guy from Death by Stereo. <laughs> <laughs> it's great because I have very specific things that I hear when I'm writing a song, but sometimes it's really hard to describe a fill to a drummer when you're not a drummer. And so there have been lots of times where like, I'm trying to mouth something for Kellen, and then maybe I sit and play like a slow version of on the drums. And I'm like, oh, some, oh, okay, you know. Do this, but faster. Right, but the best moments are on a song like Lost from the Squalor album where I'll be like, all right, now, Kellen, right before this verse, I'm just going to ring out all my strings noisily and you just go fucking ape shit. And he's like, all right, cool. Like, those are the best ones. <laughs> and so when you got a guy like Mike Cambra, who's a fucking world-class musician, and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, just go fucking nuts. You're like, all right. <laughs> and he'll give you three versions of what going fucking nuts might look like. And uh, then we just get to pick, oh, that one. That was the cool. All right, I'll do it like that, you know. <laughs> 
Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I wish I could have been in that room. He's very, very collaborative. Is is a, a real treat because, you know, with this band, we do certain rules. You know, we have like, okay, we don't play a double kick pattern. We play an old school hardcore beat. Part of that is because it's so excessively fast, it sounds tighter when you're playing a simpler drum pattern. And it also allows for me to throw in all these extra guitar chords and shit without just muddying the waters. And so, you know, certain things like that, it was like, all right, we need you to not play any no effects kick pattern. And he's like, ah, but I really, you know. And so there's one part of the record where me and Ben were like, okay, it actually does sound really good right there. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, but like whenever we had a note, he was great about being like, oh, okay, well, let me try the chorus like this, you know, and, and just do as many versions as we wanted of any song or any part of any song. First time I saw you guys play. Was the water trough? The bar. Yes, that place. Yeah, the ice storm. I, I couldn't stop watching Kellen. Yeah. Like, as much as, like, you're my friend and stuff, I was just like, fuck, how are you doing this? You're just like a machine. I'm glad that you said that, actually, because I forgot while we were recording the drums, we would be like, all right, let's pull up the next song. And Mike had all the demos that me and Lauren did, the slow versions, on his phone. And so he would be sitting there with a notepad going over the outline of the song while he had the iPhone playing in his ear. So it was like, okay, yeah, yeah, this one goes this three and a half times, that fucking one and you know, three quarters. This one has that weird pause, this one, whatever. He's going through the uh, arrangements. You know, me and Paul would be pulling up the scratch guitar tracks and the clicks and everything. And he'd be like, all right, let's tempo on this one. He'd be like, uh, 240. I'm like, fuck. Re- really? Like, yeah, yeah. So I had 240. Like, I slowed it down a little bit, but I think 240 is about what we'll probably do live. You know, and he's like, fuck, okay. You know, I'm like, all right, give me a take. He'd be coming in too slow. I'm like, oh, fuck it. All right, all right. Yeah, give me a couple more. And I'm watching this dude, who's one of the best punk drummers I've ever seen, struggle with our speed at first. Like, he would finish it and be like, Jesus Christ. And we'd pull up the next song and be like, this one's 250. He'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> so, so every time he'd be, like, yeah. oh, he'd be like, oh my God, that's the fastest thing I've ever played. Then the next one would be faster. He goes, man, your drummer better fucking play him this fast because this is hard. Oh, he will. And I'm like, here. And I pulled up the first track on Peril. (laughs) And uh, Kellen is a trip to watch. Like in person, it seems impossible. Kellen's a grindcore drummer, so we're his slow band. Yeah. That's the cool part. (laughs) I, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I mean, he was very happy to hear that like that was like a big compliment from mike who again is he plays with one of the better hardcore drummers absolutely i mean he plays with the technique of like a real virtuoso like i mean you can tell he's he's studied and he's incredibly good and so to see him have a respect for kellen of like wow he can do that and then also be able to once he got the feel of the song to like add his crazy shit to his like fuck you know there were times where I remember talking to Kellen, like, uh, did you get a chance to listen to uh, the drum tracks I sent? And he'd be like, I mean, there were some parts that were, like, bigger than I would have done, but it's it's all cool. And then, like, we'd get in the room months and months and months later uh, when we're practicing for this show, 
you know, the first time we run through Apathy, uh, which is the next song on the record, he played it kind of straight like he would have played it, right? That was just kind of learning it. But then he listened to the record a bunch. And the second practice, he starts doing the mic shit. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's actually really cool, though. <laughs> so it was cool that, like, this record is kind of made in a bubble. And I sort of see it less as a sequel to Squalor and Peril and more just kind of like, this is our pandemic record. But it's cool that there's, like, some version between Kellen and Mike it's not what either of them would have exactly done on their own. It's sort of them playing to suit the song. I like that it's a little bit different like that, though. Yeah. Well, there was, in Pride, I said, all right, this song, I want to have a one-bar drum intro, just like a fast drum intro. And he's like, oh, okay, like, what are you talking about, though? And I said, uh, you know, think of, uh, uh, okay, Death by Stereo, think of the first record, looking out for number one. And he's like, Oh, right. Okay. Do you want me to just rip that off? You just put it there? I'm like, no. I'm just saying, like, for example, <laughs> the energy of that. He's like, I mean, I could do a Death by Stereo homage on your record. I'm like, we have you. We have Paul. We have Ephraim. Let's, That's enough. Let's come up with something cool. He tried a few versions and came up with a really sweet one. <laughs> and that was another one where it's like, okay, now we're practicing for the show. And Kellen's sitting down playing that feel going oh this feels fucking backwards like how the why did he and then <laughs> but once we got it we're making our medleys for the show it's like oh yeah that fucking rules you know and so it's been cool you know i went off and did this thing and now i'm back with my my real drummer and feeling the songs all three of us playing live in a room like it just they feel uh fantastic man i can't wait to see it live it's gonna be fun yeah, it is. It really is. Apathy is uh, one of the new songs we're going to be playing. This is another one of my very favorites. It starts with just a Ben Polanski uh, bass riff. It reminded me, at first, kind of a blank check. Sort of a similar tempo. Me too! A similar finger position, but... The way it evolves is completely different. And um, when we practice this, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a simpler one, right? It just goes this and this and this. And, oh, fuck, this one's kind of hard. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely not blank check, but it's maybe the next evolution of that type of a song. It's another one where you fit a lot of song into a very short amount of time. Yeah. There's a lot going on. And I think this feeds really well thematically into New Normal. Losing Ground is very much like a fuck-it-all, kind of a depression song, but if you take Losing Ground, like it ends with, I accept defeat, there's no place that I'd rather be than dying in my sleep. And then you go into apathy and we're talking about, it's maddening that we have to see the end of humanity. Like... It's kind of that microcosm of how I'm feeling about my own life in our whole societal collapse that we're beginning to witness here. And I really like that the song isn't just an outburst. There's a lot to it. Yeah. This one is very obvious in that it's a very thoughtful track. Yeah. 
it's one of those things where there's there's multiple songs throughout the record kind of on this general theme, different angles of it. And a lot of it is just me sort of digesting what was 2020 and all of all of the different ways it just felt like the fucking world as we know it is not coming back. Like it's only getting worse. Everything you can think of is getting worse, right? That's just how it felt. You know, the bridge to this song where I'm trading off with Kellen. Reprises an earlier lyric in the song where I kind of hinted it. I said, this is not politics. Like, we've lost control. I weep for the world. It's like if you keep apprised at all about what's happening in the world, it is just heartbreaking and devastating in a new way every day, kind of wearing down your soul. And then later, this trade-off part, we bring it back and we say, it's not politics, it's life or death. Water is rising, can't hold my breath. Lungs have been emptied, gasping for air. Doesn't affect me, don't ask me to care. And just throwing in that cynical little, like, Again, the things that we have normalized and become accustomed to of like, man, did you hear about whatever today's disaster was, whether it's a mass shooting or another death toll milestone in the virus or fucking Ukraine getting attacked, Palestine getting attacked, whatever it is, right? There's this sort of detachment that we all fall into at times. And I think part of it's just survival of like, you know what? I can't be emotionally attached to all of these things that I hear anymore. And closing the song with the words, this is life or death. This is life or death. We're hanging in the balance. It's such a fucking crazy time. I don't know how everyone's not writing these songs. Right now. Well, that's a good segue into the last song. Yeah. New Normal. I love that title because it's very on brand with this theme. You know, this one could be applied to a number of things. Climate change, the pandemic, you could apply it to general, like, Trumpism, misinformation, internet. And also apathy. News sharing. Uh-huh. Yes, apathy. The beginning of the song, how the fuck did this happen? Everything set ablaze. The collapse of an empire witnessed the end of days. We could be talking about the National Guard in the streets with the riot police burning shit down. We could be talking about the literal wildfires, like I said, in the bridge. To me, those four lines sum up the entire album. This point of no return. It's a hard thing to describe, and I think I managed to uh, attempt it several times on this one pretty well, I guess, but this is probably my my favorite version of it. And having Evan on there to sing it with me was really nice. You know, we've done a lot of That's shows. super cool. Streetlight Cardiacs is a huge part of 
dead fucking serious because Evan sings on this song, right? And he's always been a supporter of the band. Lauren, the drummer, played the drums on the demos for this record. And Phil, the bass player slash guitarist songwriter, is the bass player for DFS on the Peril Tour, right before we took our hiatus. And so really all of the members of that band helped us get to this record. Man, Phil is a good bass player. Holy (laughs) shit. Yeah, that was great because we never practiced with him at all. We were about halfway through our set in San Francisco, and I was like, oh, yeah, shout out to Phil, just filling in with the band. We've actually never played these songs with him before uh, right now. And everyone in the crowd was like, what? How? He's so good. So that's just a testament to him bringing his A-game. Matt Freeman good. Yeah. As far as skill level goes. This is apropos of nothing really, but bringing up Matt Freeman, I was watching uh, Roger Lima from Lesson Jake noodle around on his bass on Instagram today. And I was like, this is one of the best bass players in ska or punk, hands down. This dude can play anything that Matt Freeman can play, right? And yet their songs are just built in a way that that's not the point. It's always around the vocal. It's always around the hook, whether that's the horn or the vocal or the lead guitar or whatever it is. But I was like, man, I love, love, love Matt Freeman. And I hope that at some point people in a larger way, in a broader spectrum, appreciate that Roger belongs in that category. Yeah, Lesson Jake is just never... Put that in the forefront. Yeah. There's a handful of, you know, like Borders and Boundaries starts with... Watch that dude sing while just shredding up and down the fretboard, you know, with like effortless ease. Like, yeah. Anyway, speaking of bass players, that was just a shout out to Phil. We love Phil, we love Lauren, we love Evan, we love yeah. Streetlight Cardiacs, and that's the record. It's only 16 minutes, almost 17 minutes, so each of our full lengths have been getting a little bit shorter and shorter, but I really don't think it needed anything else. Panicdote is very long. I wanted the rest to just be a one-two punch. I worked with Paul in the mastering to get the timing exactly as if we had played medleys. I wanted to record this live, but just because... We're dealing with a drummer who has never played with us before. We just did it song by song, pieced it together like that. We still tried to get it to flow just like Peril. Again, Paul did a fucking phenomenal job. The mix is monstrous. It's fantastic. Like it, it is as monstrous as the album is. Half of it was recorded with Paul. The drums and one side of the guitar were recorded with Paul. And then up here, I did the bass and the other side of the guitar at my place, and so because it was kind of a Frankenstein, I was still talking to Bill and Jason about having it mixed at the blasting room, and Paul was going to give us a much better deal on it, so I'm like, all right, I took a stab at it. Why don't you do a song? We'll compare these, and then Paul's was so fucking good. I was like, oh, my God, I had no idea you could do that with these tracks. <laughs> and I mean, honestly, I think it's one of his best sounding records and he's got some bangers. When we were all finished, he said it, he was very proud of it too. So that, that means a lot. It was a very good collaboration between the two of us, the two studios, all the different contributors. Like for one 
thing coming from my brain, top to bottom, as far as like the songwriting goes, I could never have made a fraction of this record without this laundry list of people. And that's why I wanted to start the show by saying like, all of these contributions are why it's this good, you know? Yeah, and, and now let's just take a quick second. So you have Ephraim Schultz, Blue Collar from Sick of It All. You know him. It feels weird you even a, saying that much. On the same song. On an album that you wrote. Yeah. That you were releasing. And I'm just going to be like 16 years old here for a sec. Like, <laughs> that is fucking bananas, dude. Yeah, I mean, and I I am pretty experienced now with playing shows with people that I looked up to for a long time, but I totally fanboyed when fucking Ephraim showed up to the studio. Uh, like, I brought two of my Death by Stereo CDs from home and had Mike, Paul, and Ephraim. You, you, you remember F on the day of death when, sign when you... <laughs> oh, yeah, kind of. Like, when we plugged in the guitar and everything... I start playing emo Holocaust, you know, it's like we used to cover that in high school. And like, I remember sitting in my bedroom freshman year of high school, learning to play the guitar solo on the first track of day of the death, you know, just playing over and over, trying to get it right. And, uh, how crazy that we're just in this studio right now with all of these guys joking around it's like Ephraim recorded his part and he's like, well, no, no, let me do another layer like this. Let me do another layer like this. And so like, that's part of the reason his sounds so fucking huge is because it's like triple or quadruple tracked. Paul just kind of wow. buried and blended them a bit. And then he goes, are you sure there isn't anything else you want me to do? And I'm like, well, sure. Do you want to do the echo on the first chorus? Like, yeah, great. And so that's why we added that. But I mean, he was just so friendly and so just like, I don't know, man. Like he gave me a show. He fucking came down, donated his time and his voice to the record. Like I just, I couldn't believe it. And then, and then Lou, you know, like I, I had him on the podcast and we've stayed in touch this whole time. Like those guys are oh coming my gosh, through. What a great episode. Oh, what man. a rad dude. That was like, if you guys haven't heard that, if you listen to this show this far, go back and listen to episode 75 with uh, Lou from Sick of It All. My God, what a good time. And those guys are coming to Portland in September with Agnostic Front. I haven't seen them in 20 years since my old hardcore band opened for them. The infamous Wow Hall yes. show? Yes. I cannot fucking wait. You better believe I'm going to bring some shit to get signed. I'm going to be a shameless fan even when I could play it cool, I could be like, hey, man, here's a copy of that record. Thanks again. Like, good to see you. You know, whatever. You remember when you were on my podcast? <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah, man. Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm so grateful for those things. And um, this is something I will be forever proud of. And speaking of these collaborations, I didn't mention this, but I've had the actual hand-cut collage from the album cover framed on my living room wall since november and I, <laughs> I haven't been able to show anybody because the fucking album wasn't ready yet and so i'm very happy that people get to see it because i've got it hanging in my living room i'll have to post a picture next to the winston smith signed 12 inch of in god we trust that i've had i think since he was working on peril or something to get to work with these dudes is just it's it it I can't say enough how much it means to me and uh Mike 
was the linchpin for this whole record. Like, this would not have gotten made without him. It is so hard to find someone who can play this fucking fast, this fucking consistent and aggressive to get the right guy to do it well. Oh, you, yeah. You yeah know. Let's not forget you have Mike Camber playing on this entire record. Oh, my gosh. What a gift. What a gift. You know, like, I've interviewed some amazing punk drummers, but the right blend of influences and personality and, like, I couldn't have asked for a better creative partner to bring these songs to life. So, again, just tremendous gratitude to all of these people who made this possible. And and Ben, like, it, it's so good to have Ben back in the band. Like, he hasn't recorded with us since the demos for our second EP in 07. Like, he, he's played shows with us and stuff, but, like, it's been that long. Like, literally 15 years since he played on a record with this band and to have another guy who was around this whole time like and when when we started the band and knows what we should sound like to have him in the room while i'm listening to mike's takes and go wow i'm blown away that i'm hearing this and i'm a little like almost starstruck by this experience but let's you and me (laughs) keep a cool head and go but is that awesome thing right for DFS? And sometimes you got to say, you know what? No, don't do that. Just play it straight. So many times I would be like, wow, that was rad. But can we do one where we play it straight? That just became the motto. And so having been there to keep us grounded was great. I remember one time he joked, he goes, look, every cool thing you do like that is one less cool thing he's going to let me do on the bass tracks. (laughs) I'm like, that's right. That's exactly right. On some personal nerd out shit. And this just came to me. How many albums do you have where the first song has two features on them? You have Hands Down. Hands up, hands up. The prerequisite cliche from rappers using laptops instead of the DJ. Hands up, hands up. Fair weather fans down, but I command a crowd like the best ever. Hands down. Here, I'll tell you this. When we were getting close to the session, Mike would be like, so stylistically, we talked a little bit, but like, what would you compare it to, the approach you want me to take? And so I'd send him some YouTube links of like, F minus is a great example, right? I sent him Suburban Blight. He goes, do you want Brad on the record? I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, uh, Brad Logan, He's uh, he plays bass in the adolescence with me. I'm like, what? And no fucking idea. He's like, yeah, I could get him on the record. I'm like, um... <laughs> I don't know. Have a different feature on every, every well, Yeah, song. yeah, yeah. And and so I said, well, no, but I do love that. Just another moment of, of Mike being super generous when, like, we're talking about how should I approach the drums for this record. Oh, you like that record? Well, how about I bring him, you know, I invite him to the studio with us. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that's, wow, you are too nice to me. <laughs> It's really cool to be able to do that and like be in a position to, so I can kind of see like where he's coming from in that like, like how fucking cool is it that I can like make somebody's day? Yeah. I try to let these guys know like this really is like a dream come true moment for me. I don't know how well I can really express that beyond just being appreciative like that, but it really is profoundly deep importance to me. Yeah, dude. 
Chad said something. Uh, Chad is our booking agent. He said the only real sad part is that Panic Note is probably never going to get played live in full. Well, and that fucking sucks. You might be surprised that our closing song at the Wilhelm Scream Show, we have invited our original bass player and monster vocalist Chris? from this day's end, Chris Wilson, to do the features on Panic Dose at the show. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited. All right, that is our show. Huge thanks to Joel for coming back onto the show and to all the people who helped me bring this album to life. It will be available June 14th. You can pre-order at take92.com. Get the CD, the T-shirt, the skate deck, you name it. Brand new stickers included. You can see us live with the Wilhelm Scream in Portland, Oregon on June 14th at the Star Theater. You can see us live in Eugene, Oregon, June 30th at John Henry's with Negative Approach. I'm going to leave you with a song we talked a lot about. This is the first track on Clandemic, Dead Fucking Serious, featuring Luke Holler from Sick of It All and Ephraim Schultz from Death by Stereo. This is Panicdote.
Everyone's running, we're gonna turn it on their back!